You can open up your Bible to the book of 2 Corinthians. We are nearing the end of this letter. I've been enjoying going through this the last several months with you. We have this Sunday and next Sunday, and then we'll be done with this book of the Bible, and we'll share some more next week about what we're going to teach on after that, Uh, but I hope that we can end this book well. I wanted to to note a couple, or actually just one main thing before we get into the text. Um, This is going to, I think most of you know this, uh, and if you're in the room, it might not be as significant of a note for you. Um, but if you had not heard yet, I wanted you all to know this is actually the last Sunday today. What's going on right now is the last Sunday where we're going to be live from the get-go. That we understood it was a unique time in the world and a unique need uh, for us to uh, be able to minister to those who were at home, uh, those who were sick, or those who had legitimate health concerns that kept them away. And so we've been talking for months now. Now with uh, vaccines available and health is better in our community, uh, that, that we've been thinking a while and have decided that this will be the last Sunday that we live stream. And so. We're planning on starting next Sunday, uh, next weekend, to still record the service and to post the sermon at least afterwards on Monday in the same place that our live stream is. Um, but wanted to make a note for those of you who maybe have sometimes been live streaming or even if you are today, I want you to know that next Sunday uh, we will not have the live stream up on Sunday morning. But if you do need to miss or if you're out of town, uh, then, then you can listen at least into the sermon the following day, hopefully, Lord willing, each week. Uh, but wanted to note that. Uh, There's a familiar saying uh, that Jesus said that that most of us probably know. Uh, He said it, uh, he said, from the abundance of the heart, what? What did he say? From the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So several of you at least are familiar with that. He, He was making this point very emphatically and succinctly that when we speak, when we have words come out of our mouth or in today's day and age when we, they come out of our pen or out of our fingertips to go online, those words are coming from somewhere. Uh, they don't just magically appear. They're coming from somewhere deep within us. They are coming from the abundance of our heart. And so uh, the, a text like the one we come to today begs a question that some of us maybe have not thought about before. And I, I may ask it in a, a way or two, but the question would essentially be this, is can a sharp tongue be connected to a soft heart? Like can sharp words, cutting words, come from a, a heart of love? from a heart that's been born again, can that happen? Or are they just not, can they not coexist? If a, if a person is legitimately born again and dwelled by the Spirit of God, has a new heart, can they still at times speak with a sharp tongue? Can they speak with sharp, cutting words? And we're going to come to this text today, and I think we'll find an answer to that. And for some of us, our instinct may be to think, of course they can. Uh, I see it all the time. I do it all the time. Others, our instinct may be to think, absolutely not. There's no way. Uh, an indwelled, spirit-indwelled person should never have sharp words come out of their mouth. But I think we will find a clear answer from today's text. So we're going to look at the second half of 2 Corinthians chapter 12. We're going to start in verse 11 here in just a second. Uh, As we near the end of this letter, uh, we're going to go through chapter 13 next Sunday, but we're going to go through the second half of chapter 12 today. And so we've been going through this for a few months, several months even, but if you have not been with us, just so you know where we're, where we're landing in this letter today, where we're touching down. This is a letter written by the Apostle Paul, uh, written to a church in the city of Corinth that he had helped start, uh, that he had been investing in for years, that he had made multiple visits to, sent multiple letters to. Uh, but what had prompted this letter was a few different things. Uh, but the primary one was this opposition that had arisen against him. 
Uh, while he had been away, there had been these teachers who rose up within that church and who were cutting him down, uh, even to his face, or especially while he was gone. They were uh, casting doubt and suspicion about his legitimacy, uh, his authority, even as an apostle. And so through most of this letter, and we're going to see him doing this again today, he is defending himself. Uh, he, he's trying to validate or, or once again validate for these believers there in Corinth that he really is a legitimate apostle, that they really do have a responsibility to listen to him. In chapter 11 and even into the beginning of chapter 12, uh, as part of this defending of himself, Paul had kind of entered into this boasting contest. If you've been here the last few Sundays, you may remember this. He had uh, these False teachers there in Corinth were boasting about all these sorts of accomplishments and accolades and their eloquence and those types of things, uh, and they were casting doubt upon Paul. And Paul essentially, in the text leading up to today, has been entering into a boasting contest, saying, okay, let's see whose boast is actually better. Let, let's stack these up, false teachers and mine, and see whose boast is actually better. And that wasn't Paul's first instinct. He didn't like doing that, but he was willing to enter into it to try to make a rhetorical point. And so we're going to see as we come to verse 11 today, Paul started out saying, I have been a fool. Uh, all he's going to do there is he's acknowledging that thing I just did, that boasting contest, that was dumb. That was foolish. I didn't really need to do that. In some ways, I was very reluctant to do that, but I was still willing to do it. And we're going to see uh, him address these Corinthian believers, uh, at least a subset of them. And I want to note one more thing before I read this. I'm going to use the, an old-fashioned word today. It's even in the title. It's the word upbraiding. Uh, do any of you know what that means? Some of you. Okay, very, almost, any, okay, one person, the PhD in the room. No, was, oh, maybe I should have picked a different word. Okay, upbraiding, what upbraiding is, it's a very old-fashioned word. It goes with upbuilding, uh, but upbraiding is an old-fashioned word, kind of an old English word about criticizing, correcting a person, sometimes even out of anger, like you upbraid the person, like you come at them, you, you correct them, you address them, uh, often harshly. And so we're going to see that Paul kind of does that again, that he upbraids these believers. He has some hard things to say to them as they've had some hard things to say to him. And so I want to read this text, 2 Corinthians chapter, 11, or chapter 12, verse 11 through 21. So I'd encourage you to follow along in your copy of the scripture as Paul continues writing this letter uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says, I have been a fool. You forced me to it, for I ought to have been commended by you, for I was not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I am nothing. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. For in what were you less favored than the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not burden you? Forgive me this wrong. Here for the third time I'm ready to come to you, and I'll not be a burden, for I seek not what is yours but you. For children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? But granting that I myself did not burden you, I was crafty, you say, and got the better of you by deceit. Did I take advantage of you through any of those whom I sent to you? I urged Titus to go and sent the brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not act in the same spirit? Did we not take the same steps? Have you been thinking all along that we've been defending ourselves to you? 
It is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ, and all for your upbuilding, beloved. For I fear that you, and I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. This is the word of God. Summary statement of what I'd like to communicate today from this text uh, is this, and it uses that word upbraid that we just learned, uh, is this. The aim of upbraiding must be upbuilding. The aim of upbraiding, if it's going to happen, must be upbuilding. Or said a different way without that old-fashioned word, I, I may say it this way, that if we are going to use a sharp tongue, it better be connected to a soft heart. That if we're going to have hard things to say to people, if we're going to use cutting arguments or words or phrases toward them, it better be, it ought to be, it must be if we're a Christian connected to a soft heart, right? Jesus made that point, that our our words come from our hearts. So if we're going to speak hard things, we need to have soft hearts behind them. So I want to walk through this text, kind of get into the world of what was happening there in Corinth and this correspondence between Paul and this church by using three headings. The first one is going to be this, is the upbraiding of Paul. So there was this upbraiding happening toward Paul, this correcting, this, this um, refuting, this criticizing that had been coming toward Paul, coming in his direction. And if you've been with us as we've gone through this letter, we've seen this from the get-go. We've seen it from the very beginning. These allusions or sometimes these direct statements that Paul is making in this letter about this group that had been publicly criticizing him. Uh, who had been saying hard things about him, who had been making accusations about him, trying to discredit him. They had been going to taking him to task, trying to lower him in the estimation of all these Corinthian believers. They had been trying to take him down a notch. They had been upbraiding him. They had been correcting him. And we've seen through this letter, praise God, most of the Corinthian believers had repented of that. Because at the beginning, they were almost all believing it. They were buying into it. They were, they were all kind of letting these doubts about Paul creep in and not respecting him. We're going to get a hint of that even today. Uh, that some of that still remains, though. Even though most of them have repented, most of them have had Paul restored to the place as an apostle that he should have held in their heart all along. There's still a group. There's still We don't know how many, how sizable, how influential, but there's still a group there in the church that is still upbraiding him, that's still criticizing him, that's still casting all this doubt about him as an apostle. And so we don't have transcripts of what happened. We just kind of have like one side, one end of the phone call that we can hear by reading these letters we call First and Second Corinthians. But we can pick up a little bit of even what they were saying, even though we don't have a written record of it as we read through the letter. They were saying things that he was manipulative. They were saying things about him being greedy. They were suggesting things, it seems, like that he was holding out on the Corinthian Christians, offering them this this gospel of suffering and pain and trial when he really should have been offering them this gospel of prosperity and health and wealth uh, and abundance. And they've been uh, making all these accusations, been publicly criticizing him. But where Paul starts in today's text and what breaks his heart as an apostle, as, as the pastor, so to speak, who established this church, humanly speaking, is what they did not say. So there's these people who are accusing him, who are upbraiding him, who are ridiculing him, casting all this doubt about him. And what breaks Paul's heart, you see in verse 11, is what the Corinthian believers didn't say in response. He he starts by saying, I've been a fool. He says, you forced me to it. Then he says this, for I ought to have been commended by you. 
Implied in that is that he wasn't commended by them, right? That, that these people whom he had loved, that he had shown uh, his heart, that he had served for years, did not come to bat for him. They did not stand up for him when these accusations started to come. When people started upbraiding him, criticizing him, these people just stood silent. They just let it happen. They didn't commend Paul. They didn't stand up for him in his defense. And Paul is hurt I think, by their silence. This, this letter of 2 Corinthians shows the heart of Paul, that his humanity as, as a man, that, that his heart is broken, that he is saddened by the way that they did not stand up for him. And he's even more heartbroken because they had every reason to stand up for him, right? That's what he says, you didn't commend me. I ought to have been commended by you, but I wasn't. And he says in verse 11, I wasn't at all inferior to these super apostles. And then that's his like, kind of condescending term to talk about those false teachers. He says, I'm not at all in fear to them. And then verse 12, he reminds them that when he had been there, when he had been ministering amongst them there in Corinth, he says, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. He doesn't delineate what those were. We don't know what they were. We don't have video evidence of what those signs were. But there was, as Jesus sent out apostles to establish churches, to take the gospel into territory where it had not gone before, he had their message be accompanied by signs and wonders. You can read through the book of Acts and you see this. There's these healings. There's these miraculous manifestations of the Spirit of God. And Paul was saying, as I came to you, Corinthians, those things happened. You remember that? Like God by the Spirit testified to the truthfulness of what I was saying and to the, the legitimacy of who I am as one sent out by Jesus. Do you not remember that? And even though they had witnessed those things, even though they had seen those things firsthand with their own eyes, when these super apostles came to discredit Paul and were criticizing him, taking him to task, these people stood by and said nothing. They didn't commend Paul, they didn't defend him, they didn't advocate for him. So Paul is heartbroken by this, but he's even more heartbroken, I think, by what you see down in verse 16. He's heartbroken not by just what they didn't say, but what they did say. That they started to join in the chorus of critics. That they started to even upbraid him themselves. That they started to criticize him themselves, right? If you look at verse 16, he says to them, you, you know, he says, granting... Like, you were granting that I didn't burden you myself. Like, so he's saying, you acknowledge that, Corinthians. Like, you know for a fact when I ministered to you, I didn't burden you by asking money of you. I didn't burden you in any way. I, I was gentle and kind among you, serving you. You acknowledge that, he says. You know that. It's undeniable. But then he says, I was crafty, you say, and got the better of you by deceit. And so what had happened there in the church at Corinth wasn't just that there was these super apostles, these fake apostles who'd come in and started criticizing Paul and taking him to task and other people just listened quietly. That happened at first, but what it devolved into was that these hearers of that upbraiding started joining in it themselves. They started saying, you know what, even now, not just you're hearing it, you are saying it about me even though you know it's not true. Even though the things that, that you are saying you know are not factually accurate. And so Paul is burdened by this. He, he has seen these people, these friends, these brothers and sisters in Christ, move from just hearing accusation about him to joining in, to, to, to believing these things and starting to put them in their own mouths and make these statements themselves. 
And so there's this upbraiding that has been happening of the Apostle Paul in years gone by with this church and now even presently with this little remnant of people who are starting to spew this stuff themselves. They're starting to spread these accusations themselves. They're criticizing him very publicly, very directly. And a, a few points of application under this section. One would be that you are not, if you are a believer in Christ, you are not I am not immune from being misunderstood and being misrepresented, even by fellow Christians. That can and does happen. It happened to the Apostle Paul. He's saying there is perfectly good evidence that he was noble and righteous and godly in his interactions with them. That was undeniable. Yet accusations came. Yet upbraiding happened. This taking to task of him was happening. Lies are being spread about him. And this can be incredibly, incredibly painful as a Christian to see brothers and sisters who know things that are, are true about you and untrue about you and say the exact opposite. Who are willing to spread lies, who are to, willing to plant seeds of misrepresentation. That can be so, it's important for us to know Jesus was not immune from it, right? Paul was not immune from it. We are not immune from it. You are not immune from being misunderstood and misrepresented, even being publicly criticized at times. But a more direct point of application from this text is I want you to know how important it is if you are a believer in Christ for you to, when you see or hear of people being wrongfully accused of things, how important and vital it is for you to speak up on their behalf. It, it is a temptation for us when we hear people uh, being accused of things and we know even they're wrongfully accused of things sometimes. Sometimes it can be tempting for us to just bite our tongue and be quiet. And just let it happen and say, well, that's none of my business. They can think what they think. I know what's true. I know what's not. And we can have this cowardly silence that overcomes us. Where we're not willing, when we should be commending a brother or sister, when we should be standing up for them, advocating for them, uh, we fail to do it. And it becomes so easy with certain personalities to just nod along when we hear accusations about others. To think, I don't want to enter into this fight. I don't want to, to get into this mess between these people. But it is vital for us to stand up for the people who are being wrongfully accused. That, that is an important part of our Christian witness. Not just to not tell lies, but to positively tell the truth. Right? That is important for us as believers. But Because Paul is addressing that. That they didn't commend him when they should. But secondly, he's correcting them for their spreading of lies, for their accusations, their public upbraiding of him. And a point of application for that, and this should be so obvious, we should learn this from the time we were very young, but is that you ought to not spread lies about other people. You ought to not even toy with that, dabble with that, even go near that spreading of information that you, certainly if you know it to be false, you ought to not spread it. But even if you think it might be true, it can be tempting, so tempting to spread words of gossip, to start to spread misinformation, to spread rumor, to spread speculation about people and even brothers and sisters in Christ. And none of us are immune to this. None of us are immune from this temptation. I see this happen so much. I feel like it happens more online than in real life. But where we start to think we know the truth about something, where we start to think we know the truth about a person and why they did that or what they did, and we just spread it like it's true. 
We just say, I know this is true. We just say it like it's a fact about this person or about this group of people when we know nothing about it. And we need to be careful of that. We need to be mindful of that because we can drift into what these Corinthian believers did where we start to hear things and at first we're like, yeah, I don't know about that. Uh, that seems wrong. It maybe even grates against the things that we know to be true. But the louder we hear it, the clearer we hear it, the more forcefully we hear it from people, sometimes we start to be won over and we start to become a speaker of it ourselves. We start to become someone who passes along messages that we don't even know to be totally true or sometimes that we know to be false. And we need to be good witnesses, good bearers of truth, that we stand up for people who are wrongfully accused and we refuse to spread rumor or accusation that we know to be false or things that we don't know much factually about at all. So we see this upbraid, we've seen it throughout this letter, we see it, hints of it here that there's been this upbraiding of the Apostle Paul um, by the Corinthians. There's even still this remnant of believers who just are not repenting of that. Paul has tried lovingly to correct them and to tell them to stop spreading these lies about him, but they're continuing to do it. They're continuing to discredit him. And so what you see in this letter, and you see it again today, is that Paul in return responds back with an upbraiding of his own. Uh, that, that he doesn't just sit passively back, but he turns the tables on them and starts to publicly, by writing a letter, publicly correct them, publicly criticize them. And he has sharp words to say to them, doesn't he? And this, this section of the letter that we're reading today, you see glimpses of it. Uh, but I would remind you, if you've been with us in previous weeks, that Paul, even before he sat down to write what we call 2 Corinthians, Paul had already written a letter that we don't have. Uh, maybe we've called it like 1.5 Corinthians, that he referred to as a severe letter. Something that was really pointed, really hard, where he had confronted sin in their life. He had confronted sinful attitudes that were present amongst them as a church. And he had even made a, what he called a painful visit to them as well. Uh, he, he wasn't just always offering these pleasant, nice statements to them. There were times where he was forceful with them, where he was direct with his words, where he was cutting even toward them. And you see him do this again today in today's text. So like, if you look back at verse 11, He's not being kind as he says this. He, he says, I've been a fool. That boasting contest I entered into, that was dumb. That was foolish. That was ignorant. But he says, you forced me to it. For I ought to have been commended by you. It's like as a parent sometimes, or not as a parent, any human being, where we say, look what you made me do. Right? We, we, we sometimes feel provoked towards certain things because of sometimes of people's sinful behaviors or sinful attitudes. We feel this, up, this need, this responsibility to respond to it. And Paul's saying, you forced me to do that. Like you, you have not defended me. You've not commended me. You have forced me to this. You've brought me. And then he, he uses sarcasm. If you look down at verse 13, right? He, in verse 12, he said how he had shown them these signs of a true apostle when he had been ministering amongst them, these signs and wonders and mighty works. But when he gets to verse 13, he asks them this rhetorical question, and it's really sarcastic. It, it, it's really uh, cutting. It, it's these sharp words. He says, in what were you less favored than the rest of the churches, except that I myself didn't burden you? What, what he's saying in that rhetorical question is he, he's saying, uh, he, well, he, I'll point out first, as he ends the verse, he says, forgive me this wrong. Like, I don't think he's like actually thinks he did something wrong. He's sarcastically saying, forgive me, I'm so sorry. 
And what he's so sorry about is that he didn't burden this church like he burdened the other churches. Because they're saying this stuff to him like, you've held out on us. You've treated these other churches better than you've treated us, Paul. And he's like, yeah, you know what I gave to them? You're right. What I gave to all those churches that I didn't give to you was the burden of compensating me. I am so sorry. I didn't make you guys compensate me. And he's like cutting at them because he knows that they know what they're saying is false, that they're spreading misinformation. He uses sarcasm to try to make a point with them. He uses direct, uh, sarcastic language to confront uh, the, the inappropriateness of their accusations. Then if you get down to verse 17 and 18, he, he has kind of sharp language and logic again toward them. He, he enters into these rhetorical questions in verse 17 and 18 where he's responding to the accusations that they've made that he's deceiving them, that he's taking advantage of them, that he's trying to manipulate them and kind of milk them for money somehow or, or fame or reputation somehow. He, he's addressing that by exposing the, how illogical their odd accusations are. He's saying, you Verse 16, like, you know I didn't burden you. I, you grant that. I didn't burden you. And then verse 17 and 18, it's like he's saying, did I take advantage of you, like, through some side channel? Like, did, when I sent Titus to you, like, did he take advantage of you on my behalf? No, like, absolutely not. Like, he treated you the same way that I treat you. He didn't take money from you. And this other brother that he sent with Titus in verse 18 acted the same way. He says, we're acting in the same spirit. We take the same steps. The stuff that you're saying is, he's basically saying, it is nonsense. Like, I didn't take advantage of you. I'm not tricking you. Like, even the people I send you uh, on behalf of me, they're operating the same way. This is absurd. Stop it. That's basically what he's saying to them by asking them these rhetorical questions. We're going to see as we get into the closing of this letter and land the plane next week in chapter 13, he continues to have sharp language. He continues to correct them and publicly even directly correct them and call them to repentance. But Paul's heart is heavy for these Corinthian believers. He is deeply, deeply concerned for them in the state of their soul. And he is using, uh, as, as a culmination of, of months and even years, it seems, of trying to correct them, he, it's culminating in even harder language now and more direct, sharp words to speak to them. And It's just a simple point of application uh, under this section of the upbraiding by Paul. I, I would note for us, uh, and some Christians need to hear this, I used to be one of them, is that there can be a place for a sharp tongue amongst Christians. There can be a place for sharp and pointed words to be used by Christians toward other Christians. Uh, this letter, and even today's text, is testimony toward that. Uh, it's evidence of that, that a man under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and dwelled by the Holy Spirit, is writing hard things to this church. He's not just soft-peddling things. He's not just being kind of nice and pleasant And what he's saying. He's saying hard things to them. He's using sarcasm. He's using logic. He's exposing absurdity of their arguments. Uh, he is being very direct. He's being very clear in his reproof and his correction of these Corinthian believers. And sometimes, that is what God uses to penetrate the hearts of people that have become hardened. Sometimes he uses sharp words. Sometimes he uses rhetorical questions. Sometimes he uses sarcasm in his providence to cut through the hardness of heart and to get through to people. 
I would suggest I don't think that is the norm of how God acts and how God operates, but it is a way that he does by his Holy Spirit. And this letter is evidence of that. So it can be okay for us to use sarcasm. It can be okay for us to use very pointed questions, to, to, to use uh, logic that is very confronting and direct with people to expose the, the foolishness and the absurdity of how they think and the things that they are doing. But I want to reiterate what I said at the beginning by showing a few other things in this text. Is that if we are ever going to use sharp words as Christians, they better be coming from a soft heart. We cannot just go willy-nilly with sharp tongues just going at people and taking them to task and being sarcastic and cutting without it coming from a place that has a soft heart, that has the good of these people in mind, that has the, the upbuilding of these people in mind. The upbraiding that the Corinthians were doing toward Paul had sinful motivations. The upbraiding that Paul was doing in response to them, this correction of them, had godly motivations and that's what we need to follow after. And so this last section I want to call the upbuilding of the Corinthians. That even as Paul, I want to show you how even in this text you can see that even as Paul's correcting them, even as he's using sharp things to say to them and ask of them and even accuse them of indirectly, uh, he is doing so for their upbuilding. He is doing so for their good, not simply to cut them down, not simply to put them in their place. He is doing it from a pure heart. He's seeking to upbuild. And this has been a recurring theme in the letter of 2 Corinthians, that even when Paul's firm, even when he's sharp, he's doing it not to defend himself, not to, to vindicate himself, not to make sure he has a good reputation first and foremost, but to make sure that people are responding to Christ as they should. You see this most clearly in today's text in verse 19, right? He says, speaking of what he's been recently saying and even really this whole letter, he says, have you been thinking all along that we've been defending ourselves to you? It's in the sight of God that we've been speaking in Christ. And hear this, and he says, and all for your upbuilding, beloved. All for your upbuilding, beloved. Even those hard things that he's had to say, even the direct pointed words that he's had to say and the sharp questions he's had to ask, even his sarcasm has all been for their upbuilding. Every single word has been for this text, today's section of text, of Paul's deep love and care for this church that's driving him. He's, I think he is angry. I think he is frustrated. I think he is disappointed and hurt by them. But what is underneath all of that that's motivating him to say some of these hard things is a deep and abiding love for them, that he is for them, not against them. So I, I want to point out a couple things in today's text that can show you that, that even as he has a sharp tongue towards him, there's a soft heart behind it. Look at verse 14, for example. He's reminding them, and you're going to see, them, see that he does this again next week. He's reminding them that he's coming a third time to visit them at the start of verse 14. Here, for the third time, I'm ready to come to you. Like, I'm about to visit you. Time number three. And we could read right past that, but it's evidence to us that when Paul gets frustrated, when he gets hurt, when he gets mistreated by these Corinthian believers, when they're upbraiding him very publicly, criticizing him, he doesn't just spew and then leave them. He doesn't just write some scathing letters, send it in the mail with Titus or whoever, and then just never go see them. He comes back. 
but he is for them. He, he's willing to enter into hard conversation, into dialogue with this church. It is so tempting for us in today's world, especially online, I see this, where we can be kind of anonymous and we can talk to people across town or across the state where we'll just say something vile. Sometimes we'll say something hard and then we'll just ghost them. We'll stop talking to them. We'll send them some mean message and then we'll just ignore them. And that has become okay in our minds. But Paul is willing to engage with these people. He's willing to talk with them because they're brothers and sisters. He's going to come to them a third time. And I trust, we don't know a lot of what happened with Corinth afterward, but that he would have come a fourth time and a fifth time as needed. He was willing to engage with these people because he loved them. You see in verse 14, he also says, he speaks of himself as a spiritual parent of sorts. Right? He says, I'll not be a burden to you for I seek not what is yours, but you. That's a parental heart that he has for these believers there at Corinth is that he doesn't just want their stuff. He certainly doesn't want their money. He's proven that to them. But it's not even that he just wants their praise and their, their affirmations and their commendations as an in and of itself. He wants relationship with them. He wants to be reconciled with them. He wants there to be peace and harmony between him and this church. He says in verse 15, Another evidence of his love and his soft heart to them, I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. He is willing to give of his time. He's willing to, to operate financially at a loss to minister to them. He is willing to give of his very life to minister to them. He is not just trying to, to lob bombs of accusation from afar and just harm these people. He, he is for them. He wants peace with them. And I appreciate so much one other piece of evidence. If you look at verse 19, the very last word of verse 19 is beloved, right? I love that. That even near the end of this letter where he's had hard things to say to them, where he's even saying very direct, uh, pointed things towards them, he still with sincerity and with a, a, a heart for them can call them beloved. That you are beloved by Christ, that you are beloved by me, He's suggesting amidst frustration and hurt, he can call them beloved. Even as he sends sharp words to them, they are beloved in his heart. He is for them. And Paul is not just trying to stoke fires of argument when he says hard things. He, he fears even, you see, as he gets to the end of today's text, he fears that when he finally arrives in Corinth, that there's going to be all the, this list at the end of verse 20, quarreling and jealousy and anger and hostility, slander, gossip, conceit and disorder he fears that he doesn't want that like Paul's not just this argumentative guy who who's wanting to to cause disruption and cause disorder in that church he wants there to be peace he, he wants there to be kindness and love and harmony between him and this church and he's willing to say hard things to try to get there uh, he, he's not just trying to stir up a fight he's not just trying to I was thinking he's not just trying to outwit them He's not trying to out-hit them. Like, who can say the harder things to each other? He is seeking to show them love as he speaks hard things towards them. And I think most of all, while you see his willingness to say hard things to them, his willingness to have a sharp tongue towards them, you start to get out when you get down to verse 21. That he knows that if people are disrespectful of him as an apostle, that there's more going on than just disrespect of him. Uh, that, that, that is, that's symptomatic of a deeper problem in these people's hearts. 
That there, there's deeper, broader, more long-lasting sins that they're refusing to repent of. I, the, the offense with me is just the latest thing that, that's boiled up to the surface. But he's saying to them, if, if you're not repenting of the, your mistreatment of me, like his fear is that he's going to have to mourn that they're not repenting of these long-standing things, these impurities and sexual moralities and sensuality that he wrote them about way back in 1 Corinthians. He's saying there's this enduring disobedience towards Jesus that now is manifesting in disrespect to me, but it's a more enduring, pervasive thing, and that's what grieves him the most. It's not that they're saying hard things about him, that they're upbraiding him publicly, but that they're disrespecting Jesus. That is a bigger deal to Paul, and it should be a bigger deal to us. A few words of application as we think about when we need to say hard things to people as Christians, the need to have a soft heart behind those. I know very well, and we all could acknowledge this as human beings, that when sharp words have been directed at us, when people have upbraided us publicly or even privately, we feel compelled to use sharp words in return, don't we? Uh, We feel compelled to just strike back at them. And usually, almost always, that has some twinge deep down in us where it's motivated by anger, where it's motivated by frustration. It's motivated by a how dare you treat me like this? Like who do you think you are? I'm wanting you to put you in your place. We rarely have this first strong overwhelming instinct to respond for their good, do we? Like we want to just strike back as human beings when we've been wrong, when that we've had hard things said to us, we want to say hard things back. And our, our tendency is not to do it for their good. We experience this in every facet of life. I don't think there's any facet of life where we don't experience this temptation. We experience it with our spouses, don't we? If they say something harsh toward us, or they say something about us to somebody else, we want to all of a sudden strike back and say, oh yeah, well let me tell them about you, don't we? We, we experience it in parenting, where when a, a teenage child has said hard or disrespectful things about us to other people, we want to, to just take them to sharp words. We do this from the time that we're little with siblings, don't we? Uh, when our, our big brother or little sister, whoever, picks on us or says something to us, we're not usually trying to servant-heartedly care for them and, and kindly correct them. We are usually trying to just one-up their insult, right? Or get them in more trouble than they got us in. Like we have this deeply embedded tendency in us to fight fire with fire and just try to outdo the person who did wrong toward us. And we do this with our words uh, just as we do it with with all of the assets and, and resources that God has given to us. And sometimes we convince ourselves even that we have the moral high ground to do it. Like if they legitimately said something sinful and wrong about me, we feel almost self-righteous to get back at them to say something hard and cutting toward them. And the irony is that we can sin even while we're trying to confront sin, right? We, we can be swept into the vortex of sin and of disrespect, of hatred even. But Jesus teaches us a different way, doesn't he? To, he teaches us something different than just following our, our sinful fleshly instinct to strike back with words, to, to return sharp words with even sharper words. Jesus taught us, he said that uh, we are to love our enemies, right? And he said to even pray for the people who persecute us. The world will not teach you that. The world will teach you to try to be sharper, try to be more clever, to be more condescending, to, to be, have tighter logic than them, to be more clever than them. But Jesus says, love your enemies. 
pray for them. Speak to God about them before you even speak to them. James in his epistle, in James 1, we're instructed this way. He said to be quick to listen and slow to speak, slow to anger. And then listen to this. He said, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Like when we speak to people out of anger, when we speak pointed words to people, it is not going to produce righteousness in them and it's certainly not producing righteousness in us. It's causing strife and hostility, those very things that Paul is concerned about. And what, what Jesus teaches us to do is, as if we are wronged, as we have people upbraid us, our first instinct should be to speak kindly to them, to speak gently, speak directly to them, to not just always sit passively and do nothing. But we should be slow, I would suggest. We should be slow to upbraid a person. That, that should not be our first instinct to just strike back with hard words and cutting words towards them. This was not the first thing Paul wrote to this church, right? Like he, he had spoken kinder, more direct things in person that I think were gentler. But as they continue in disobedience, there becomes harder and harder things for him to say, sharper and sharper words for him to say. But we should be slow to upbraid a person. We should be slow to use sharp and cutting words towards people. And I, I would suggest to you on a very practical level, sharp words should rarely be spoken hastily in the heat of a moment. That's usually when we do it. It's when we're ticked off and somebody does something to us and we want to say something right in that moment to get back at them. But if we're going to speak sharp words to, towards our fellow believers or to human beings in general, I would suggest to you, I think they should be measured. I think they should be purposeful. I think they will land more effectively if we actually take time to think what we're about to say. And if we need to say hard things, to say it in a, in a manner that's been prayerfully considered, that's not just hot-headed, but that is soft-hearted, so to speak, right? I, I was very convicted about this last night. I was thinking about several years ago. It's just a scene that sticks out in my mind where I failed to do this. I have a relative. I won't even give a lot of detail about this because it, it's somewhat irrelevant, but there is a relative in my extended family that historically we've had a very hard time getting along. Uh, our personalities have been like oil and water historically. And I, would, I was the type that I would just, I, I've sought to grow in this, and I think God has helped me. But I, I used to be very passive and very uh, indirect, if not silent, about how I'd interact with people. Even when I would get frustrated with them, even when I thought that they were saying wrong things toward me, I would just bite my tongue and sinfully judge in my heart. And there came this moment uh, several years ago where I... Honestly, in my fleshness, I was just sick of it. Like, I, I was tired of the things that were going on. And I came up in my mind when, when there was this point in the conversation, there was a lot of people around where I thought, this is going to be something clever and going to be a zinger to say to this person. It's really going to put them in their place. And I said it. Like, I let it fly out of my mouth. And it did not do what I thought it was going to do. Right? It rarely does. Right? It, it led to a deeper argument, a deeper fight. Like we had to, to take time to, uh, and it even swept other people into it. And I, something I thought was going to feel so good, something I thought was going to like finally do good, was actually just reflective of a sinful heart and made things worse. And, and by God's grace, I was able to talk to that person later that night 
Uh, we both stayed up and talked for quite a while. And because we're both believers, uh, the Spirit of God, I think, gave us both a repentance and a brokenness and, and seeking of forgiveness from each other. And it's been sweet to see since then. But in that moment, I, I was speaking out of turn. I was speaking sharp words, not for that person's upbuilding, but to, to embarrass them to try to put them in their place, to try to get back at them for the accumulation of wrong things that I had thought been, had been done by them. And it was not appropriate. It was not motivated by love. It was seeking to strike back instead of to serve. But this is such a hard thing to do, isn't it? Because uh, everything in our flesh tells us to strike back, to, to use sharp words in return for sharp words and to not seek the good of that person. But I want to point you to one last thing in verse 19. Because as we think, how do I do this? Like, how can I actually speak lovingly? How can I actually, if I'm going to use sharp words, use them in a way that's constructive, use them in a way that is for the upbuilding of these, this person or these people? I think there's a clue in verse 19. Paul says, have you been thinking all along we've been defending ourselves? And then he says two things about how he's been speaking, why he's been speaking, even these hard things. He says, it is in the sight of God that we've been speaking in Christ, and all for your upbuilding, beloved. So those two phrases, that, that his speech, even the hard things, was done in the sight of God, and that it was done in Christ, are both important for us as believers. When we are considering saying sharp things to people, we need to remember that everything we do is done in the privacy of chat rooms and in uh, conversations that nobody ever hears, and even in the most public. We are speaking in the sight of God. And the people that we are so tempted to cut down with our words are people made in the image of God, right? James says that in his letter that with the same tongue we praise God and then we tear down our fellow human beings. And he says that ought not to be so. We need to remember that these people were so tempted to cut down. Even people who have seriously wronged me, they are created in the image of God and deserve respect as such. So we are to speak in the sight of God. But then he says that he has been speaking in Christ. He's not just been speaking on his own authority. He's not just been speaking from his flesh, but he is speaking to them, even these hard things he's saying in Christ. He uses this phrase over and over again in his letters. Paul has not always lived and spoken in Christ, right? You read about his life prior to meeting Jesus. You read Acts chapter 9, for example. It says that Paul was a man who would breathe out threats against people. Like, it was like his breath. Like, his words were just accusing and cutting and trying to take people down. That's how he was oriented as a person, trying to outwit and even to shame people and harm people with his words. But something changed in him, didn't it? When he was on uh, that road that day, the resurrected Jesus met him and spoke to him and changed him. He called him, instead of cutting and tearing down Christians, to use his life to build them up and even take the good news of him and his death and resurrection to people who had not yet heard it. And Paul was changed. He was transferred from the kingdom of darkness, and he was placed in Christ. He was united with the Savior who had died for him and been raised for him, and now his whole life was changed. The way he would speak to people was changed. And the same can be true of us. The truth is that every one of us, me included, you included, we deserve the judgment and the anger and the wrath of God for the words that we speak, for the decisions we make, for all of our rebellion against him. We are not naturally 
in Christ. We're outside of Christ. We're hostile to Christ. We upbraid Christ, don't we? We, uh, In our sin, we speak against him and we defy him. We have upbraided him. But on the cross, he did something on our behalf, didn't he? The ones who had mistreated, the ones, like we sang earlier, who nailed him there, he suffered in our place. He, he took our sin upon himself. The one who should be able to and has every right to strike us was struck for us. The who could cut us down was cut down for us. Our sins were placed upon him. Our sins were transferred to him and God the Father punished him in our place so that God might be able to show us mercy, that God could show us grace. And if we repent, if we believe, that's a sign that we've been united with him now, that we have been transferred and we are now in Christ. And as people who have been then shown mercy when we deserve judgment, people who've been spoken to gently when we deserve the judgment and wrath of God, we ought to be people who extend that to others. That we're not quick to show anger when we've been shown mercy. That we're not quick to cut down when we've been built up. We're not quick to condemn when we've been forgiven. Right? Because the deepest concern of our heart, as we think about people even who wrong us, the, the, the deepest desire, I would say this in closing, would not be that they fear our tongue and what we can do to them, but that they would fear the tongue, that they would fear the mouth of Christ. And what I mean is this. You read through the book of Revelation, and there is some weird stuff in there that seems weird to us. One of the strangest images that you see come up over and over again in the book of Revelation is the apostle John saw the resurrected Jesus and he sees him returning on a white horse, and he talks about a sword coming out of his mouth. You want to talk about a sharp tongue, okay? And he says that when Jesus is going to return someday, he says that that sword is going to be used to strike, this is the language he uses in Revelation 19, to strike down the nations. There is judgment coming for people who are sinful. Judgment coming for people who are unrepentant toward Christ. And someday Jesus is going to come with that sharp sword coming out of his mouth to judge. All of those who have not repented, all of those who have not come to him in faith. That is his role to strike down with the tongue, right? That is not ours. Like when we have to use sharp words, when we use hard sayings, it must not be to strike people down but to build them up to try to point them to the one who offers them life and the one that they are in threat of being judged by and condemned by and slain by even at the end of time. Our, our job, even when we say hard things, is to point them to repent and return to that Savior who will embrace them, not the one who will uh, cut them down. We don't want him to cut them down. We want them to be received by him. And so we need to be careful how we use our words, leaving that striking down to be done by Christ and to use our words to build up. Amen? If we're going to use a sharp word, it should come from a soft heart. I want to pray for us, and we're going to sing one more song before we go. Father in heaven, we come to you as people who are tempted to use sharp words, harsh sayings, uh, to cut people down, to belittle them, to strike back when we've been struck. God, we pray that you would forgive us of that tendency, that you would make us more and more like your son Jesus, who... When he was reviled, did not revile in return. Who was slow to speak hard things to people. Who was willing to 
but who was slow to do so. We pray that we would follow in his footsteps. And as people who've been recipients of mercy and grace and kindness from you, that we would be extenders of that to others, even those who have wronged us, even those who have upbraided us. May you give us soft hearts behind sharp tongues. We pray this in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen.